Hello, I'm Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. So, Ian, to start this podcast, I've actually got an object for you to look at here. <laughs> and so I'm going to give you this object, and it, hopefully it's fairly obvious what it is, but perhaps you'd like to describe it and tell us what it is. Okay, so what I'm holding here, and it's a dull green cream colour, elongated, is a... a it's like a ritual candle, a taper. Yeah. Uh, the sort of thing that one might light in a church. Yeah, exactly Christian that. Christian church. Yeah. Catholic church. Something yeah, it's like kind that. of a bit broken and bent. Bent. But yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. And I I got this candle from um, a pilgrim in Romania um, in the west of the Carpathian Mountains. Um, and there was a there was a ceremony that they happened to do while we were there. A candle was lit by one of the leaders of the pilgrimage, one of these candles, and everyone held one of these candles. Each person lit the candle of the next person along with their candle. And because we were in the Carpathian Mountains and it was quite dark, there was no natural light, it was, it was at night, there were many hundreds of people there. My memory of this particular experience is of the people who were standing on a hillside in sort of a natural amphitheatre um, these little pinpricks of light spreading down through the crowd and you know kind of the modern day equivalent being you know holding a lighter up at a concert or holding your phone up at a concert um, and these pinpricks of light spreading down through the darkness and you know as as those candles were lit then people's faces became lit up and it is quite a lovely experience to see all these tiny flickering candlelights spread across these these great crowds of hundreds of people it is quite a stirring memory I have of people collectively coming together to celebrate something. And it included the ritual lighting of these candles. And that's what today's podcast is about. It's about ritual and ceremony. There are a few things that I thought we could talk about today. Um, I thought we could talk about the rituals of life, so of birth and survival Um and all the things that includes eating and feeding and the ceremonies around death. And I thought we could talk about those things and whether we feel they shed any light on our relationship with the non-human world or our relationship with the natural world. Something you've considered, something you've thought about? Absolutely, but I wanted to dive in and ask you something because you've introduced that candle on this topic. So is ritual something that you think is... Um, essential in the human condition or is it something that we still have something that you see as essential to human life you as a as a writer and somebody with an appreciation for art see and identify things that are passages say um, of changing of the seasons mm. which you could define as, as ritual that, that humans have chosen to celebrate but there's something that clearly distinguishes us as a mammal species whereby we find a need to mark these things. Yeah. Now, why is that? I'm really intrigued as to what... You know, You know, from my perspective, I'm always likening us to the remainder of the animal kingdom mm. and find, find myself reluctant to distinguish ourselves. Yeah. And we're presented with a topic like this, which it kind of I'm confronting it in the face, and you're presenting it here as something that's unique to humans. Poss- or possibly, or, or am I? I, I, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. You might look at the biology of uh, mating displays mm-hmm. and think, well, is that so different to a marriage ceremony 
or, or a song of celebration in, in for two people, male and female, coming together? Is it is it a massive leap to get from one to the other? One could say that actually they're driven by some something different to do those things. But it is interesting because I, I, I I'm really relishing the fact that you've introduced the topic and where we're going to go with it. And I, I I guess I I'm thinking that there are other animal species that have rituals around death. Mm. Uh, there are one or two primates that bury their dead. And you might look at that and think that's to protect them from predators. But nevertheless, it suggests a reverence, right? a, a regard as a social animal for yeah. their, their relative or friend that's died. And we know that elephants have a tremendously powerful mourning for mm. dead yes. family members and have some rituals that go with that and, yeah. and, and, and that we don't entirely understand. But rituals of death seem to be some of the most prominent in human society. They do. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about the what we think the reasons for that are later on. I think there are... It, it's a really good question. And maybe my answer was a little bit thin. But maybe as we go forward, we'll, sure. we'll draw some more parallels. And I'm, your question by the end might be just as valid. Um, and we might have got no closer to understanding whether that's the case or not. Well, could, could I take us to the other end of the scale then about birth? Yeah. I mean, we, I, maybe I'm, I'm mentally marking the great rites of, of ritual in human society. And so birth is is a big one. And and what rituals do, do you associate with indigenous cultures or others that, that you think of with that? Mm. So... So let's talk about that. Firstly, I want us to listen to something. Cool. This is a, a programme of surprises, Colin. It is. It is. So the first thing that I wanted us to listen to is an Aboriginal dream ceremony. was a recording of the Walbiri people um, in the Northern Territory of Australia in this rain ceremony. What did, what did those noises conjure for you? Anything? I think it's what were really... your thoughts as you were listening to that? <laughs> I think there were two things going on. I mean, as you say, and, and uh, I think we're both open to all sorts of music and from all sorts of cultures and appreciation, but there's something so discordant and different about that that you're kind of initially mm. shocked by it because you think that is a really unusual sound from the human voice. But it also has um, this really powerful depth to it. Mm. And uh, and it's not because of you telling me what it is. I think if you just listen to it, you can almost um, feel the soil beneath your feet when you listen to that. It feels very rooted in something. That's what I would say. So that's really interesting you say that. And the reason I wanted to play that uh, as we were leading a discussion about ceremonies of birth um, is that I wanted to tell you about another birth ceremony that the... Uh, another language group in of the Aboriginal Australians have. So I'm not sure if I've got the pronunciation of this right, but the Gamalarai mm-hmm. language. Um, um, so at the time of a birth in their, or, or just before a birth in their community, the child is given 
totems. The totem links the person directly with the creation time, uh, the, with the dreaming and with all the living creatures and the lands of the Gamalari people. And what's even more special about these totems that a child is given either at, at their birth or just before is that it kind of defines their relationship with the language, the place and the community. In the example that I read about, um, a goanna may cross the path of the mother during her pregnancy and the child is then immediately seen to be linked with the goanna and more than that with that particular place and mm. so they that particular landscape that particular physical environment and when you said that that sound seemed rooted in the earth to read about a birth ceremony or, or a ritual like that that makes that true even more so um to hear about that did you yeah, I, I, I had no idea. So I, I love that, and I, I um, and I'm struck by the two the the, the, the story you discussed, the, the the song that you played, on how birth is rooted in place and identity with spirit and place, which reflects an animist culture where yeah, everything yeah. is alive in an animist yeah. culture, a shamanic culture where everything has spirit and is alive. And it's for whatever reason, the first thing that struck me was that our birth is indicated around name rather than place mm. you know that that seems to me that we commit a a child to to name maybe a faith it can be identity based around parents ancestry i think people tend to come back to that later so it's more like the birth ritual is 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 less about rootedness um, and that's that's interesting because because it seems that to me that i suspect so many rituals are place orientated yeah and it makes me want to have conversations with my mum about why she gave me the name that I did because it's an absolute (laughs) curse um Colin Farrell and uh who's the other famous Colin tall good looking Colin Firth Firth. Colin Firth they helped a little bit but it didn't it didn't completely wipe out the uh you know the popular culture notion that all Colins are (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> buffoons um, and I'm doing my best to single-handedly pull it back for all the but Colin, would it be different if you were you know, Colin of Watership Down <laughs> Colin of Place and, you it's, know, is that and, it's, and it's interesting isn't it interesting you ask the question would it make if I was called Colin of Watership Down maybe it would be I mean, certainly a lot more romantic and exciting isn't it um, but we still have the vestiges of some of those things in our place names here in here in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas those place names live in the example we talked about, they're they're kind of taken off the map and they live within the ritual and ceremony. Kind of takes those place names and gives them to the people. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I, I was um, I was in Falmouth recently in, in Southwest in Cornwall, and and where the 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 choir, the singing, building up towards uh, Christmas have their own carols and their own traditions and their own and a lot of we all joined in the streets to sing but I didn't know any of the songs or any of the words and it clearly was not not my ownership over that I wasn't even I wasn't, I wasn't invited to take part but it, mm. it, it felt this is a a ritual of place that I don't belong to and maybe me as a somewhat placeless person not bound to anything 
particularly like that. I'm envious of those rituals that takes your name and binds it to a place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it sounds very pretentious, this, and it? it could be, this is not my thing, but it could be that, you know, the Saturday afternoon joining the football chance is the ritual that binds you to something. Yeah. You might adopt Man United as your team and be from Norwich, but you can you can join in that ritual and be bound to something greater than yourself, and that seems to be a fundamental part of the human condition. And and I seek out rituals that might be like the taper candle that you have. For me, lighting a candle signifies something, and usually allows your mind to go into a state that says, "All right, we're now doing click." Yeah, we're switching into ritual of some sort. So right. let's approach life differently because we're now in a in a ceremonial, for want of a big phrase, associated with lighting a candle. We're in a ceremonial state. So whatever we do next, we're gonna give it more meter, focus on it a little bit more. Does that make sense? I was watching something on television recently where people, uh, where two guys were in Papua New Guinea. So it's really interesting because I was reminded that those places, those villages in Papua New Guinea, in the forest there, in, in the mountains, have spirit houses in, in the village. So these are houses that are, you know, surrounded by a barrier and it's not the normal place for hanging out, but it's the place that is used for a lot for these rituals and ceremonies. And I think I do recognise the situation you described where you're living your life normally most of the time but then something signifies whether it's song or a different location or an object. Something signifies that you're you're now doing something ritualistic. You're now doing something ceremonial that means something that you all your thought for that moment is concentrated on. So the more and more we talk, it sounds like your your question about whether this is inherent in in us feels to me as if more and more we're recognising that it might be. Just going back to the the birth ritual we talked about um, for the Gamalari people, that totem clearly gives them the opportunity to retell their own story of their own birth all the time and have it retold to them. Because each time they see a Goanna in the example that we used, it's, there's a significance there. I'm finding it really difficult to draw a parallel to me there, especially with something in the natural world, I don't think we have anything that's quite the same as that, do we? No, I think you're right. I think it's really it's the same question I was going to ask you because it it strikes me that there is a ritual that binds you to place through a totem, and it is you would expect it in Aboriginal culture, but in most, I suspect, it's it's linked to the natural world, the mm. non-human part of the natural world, and I can't think that that we have that. And it does seem to me that's you. you I think you know, recognise that as a perspective I have that we are lacking as a result yeah. of that yeah and I just wanted to touch upon somebody is is endowed with an ability to tell their story about themselves without a level of introspection and self-absorption <laughs> that that they are more important somehow than the things around them and that's what I was struck by when you said that I thought it's it's interesting we talked about birth ceremonies or and, and Listeners might hear that and think, yeah, but you didn't mention this, this and this. But initially I'm finding myself thinking birth is about naming an individual. And then particularly, you know, young children in Western Europe, it can be very self-absorbed at that point. It's all about them. There can be a tremendous focus on a child if a child is lucky or perhaps too much attention. And that's an unfortunate thing. But it's all about them and their name and, and less about 
their heritage, less about their particularly their place in the natural world and association with a narrative that allows them to to be part of that rather than bigger than that. Their own identity has been not taken away from them but expanded to include so many other things apart from the, the space that they as a person occupy that a person's identity might be <clears throat> so closely associated with external things and the things around them that that rock that riverbed that gum tree that goanna you know and the goanna thing is really amazing because it's a mobile creature and so your identity is not in a fixed place you could come across it anywhere and that's just i find that a little bit mind-blowing so hard for us to have a concept well i mean at the risk of going off on a tangent which i don't really want to go too far down that concept of time seems to be something that keeps coming back as a difference Mm. between a western approach and an indigenous tribal approach because we can only think of time as an abstract concept and linear yes it's like jumping on a railway line and and we're following it along you know they've done sign language things with gorillas where um for them time is visually depicted as the past is in front of them and the future is behind them. Mm. Um, but I'm going off on a tangent here. I, I don't know if it is a tangent. It, it, because it's, 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 They are viewing yeah. events that have happened in the past can clearly be seen. So you're looking at the past and, and the future is unknown. So it's, it's sort of behind. And then, of course, it might be uh, the Plains Lakota tribes where it's the sacred hoop of life and, and time is and all things are circular. And, and that's very hard to reconcile with a Newtonian physics approach to time. But it seems that um, that concept of, of, of life being a, a hoop, a sacred hoop, um, and these things being commemorated and ritualized, yeah. the events within that hoop and, and cycling over and over again, is absolutely something that, that we don't have in the West, potentially to our detriment, I think. Mm. So, I want to now take us to perhaps talking about rituals of life and living, having talked about birth and the beginning of life and some of the things associated with that. Eating, marriage, being together, just the general sort of collective celebration. A lot of these are all about life, and so there's a huge stock of examples we could use. But I wonder if we could just listen to another piece of music. And so this piece of music is a marriage ceremony song um, from the Wagogo people of Tanzania. can't listen to that and not fail to um smile well it's, it's a remarkable power of of humans isn't it yeah you know the, yeah. the different ways that we produce sound the power of group ritual um but but i i picked that because it is a marriage song and marriage and and sort of you know people coming together one of life's rituals and one of life's ceremonies so i wanted to talk a little bit about the 
other bits of this that perhaps make up these ceremonies of life and living. Go on then. And I want to start with probably the most complex one and perhaps one that you know a lot more about than I do, but that's the rituals associated with hunting and finding food. Mm. So going all the way from Tanzania with that song all the way up to Scandinavia and the sort of Slavic peoples, the Finno-Ugric peoples, Mm -hmm. um, which stretched right the way from northern Scandinavia all the way across Siberia and and almost all the way down to through Poland and Hungary in ancient times. There is a, a kind of hunter's religion that is preserved among those peoples. Myths and rites associated with the bear. Hmm. And the bear is a very, if you sort of Google stuff or look on YouTube, a lot of the Sami songs and Finnish songs that come up are associated with bears. Sure. They talk about a bear killing ceremony as as very ritualistic. And so, first of all, there was some ritual singing and dancing before a bear hunt. Mm -hmm. Um, But then once the bear is found, um, there there are two things. There's there's the killing killing of the bear and then there's the feast afterwards. They believe that the bear was protected by a a spirit guardian, a a forest guardian. Therefore, killing it involved a, a complex ritual. And that ritual kind of ended with bringing the bear back to the community, bringing the bear home. Uh, women believed that they had to keep at a distance from the dead bear for fear that it might make them pregnant because they believed its its presence was so powerful. And the feast to celebrate the killing of the bear lasted two days and was full of marriage symbolism. And so it was a lot about them joining together with the bear, as it were, and joining together with the landscape of the bear. And ritually, a young man or woman was chosen to be the bear's mate as part of this ritual. And a large meal was made of the bear meat, and that was consumed. And finally, the skull of the bear was carried in procession to the branch of a pine tree on the very top of a a rise or a mountain. Um, And it was left there. And I haven't explained that very well, because details of it are a little sketchy, and I think it had lots of local variation. But it's clearly something highly ritualised there about the simple act of finding food. Yeah, I think there's so much to go about. There, there really with is. That, there? And there's so much more you'd love to know about that ritual. Um, so the immediate thing that, that struck me when you are talking was you know, the many stories that go in the indigenous cultures about help being asked for to kill prey. Because it would it would be a task that would require whether it was a deer or whatever, it would require all the help from the spirit world you could get, and either from the spirit of that animal, mm. and that the preparation for hunting prior to going out was as, as big a part as it was just to go out and hunt. Yeah. you know Whether it's to go into a purifying lodge together before you went out hunting, or take substances to connect you with the spirits of those animals. So that's really powerful. and Lots of practical things flash through my mind mm-hmm. that... In this case, they're going out to hunt something that could kill them. Yeah. Actually, with the technology they had, it was really hard to hunt this stuff, and so they needed something extra to kind of make them swifter, stronger, give them strength, give them stamina. Um, is that true? Is that is some of those things associated with this? I believe that's absolutely true. You know, and you think, I mean, imagine right now 
We had to leave the building and go out and kill a bear. Because we were really hungry. <laughs> it's, yes. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost beyond conception unless you've got powerful firearms or traps or the, 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 the association of modern hunting equipment. So that would have been a anything that gave you additional power in all the meanings of that word. You'd, you'd, you'd grab at it. And it also, without being sentimental about this, there clearly was, you know, there was an aspect of this that showed respect for the creature you were going out to go and eat. And it seems to be something that's almost completely absent from the modern day way that we consume yeah, yeah. meat in particular. But that may actually apply to the modern day way in which we eat anything. I think that it's to do with, um, you know, there are even there are spiritual cultures around the world, including in the Humboldt Islands of Great Britain, who do a certain amount of work that if they even if they're planting vegetables, even if they're growing crops, there are some things that go with that that encourage those crops to grow big and they respect them. And it, this sounds weird and esoteric, but you think if what you're doing with something that you eat is inviting something into your body. Mm. You know, in, and, and if you are a spiritual culture, that's inviting another being yeah. to be consumed by you. And, yeah. and we don't have that approach generally. So if you're going to ingest that bear, you know you better be properly prepared for it to meet it, kill it, not be killed yourself, and then absorb it into you. And that's what that's what that ritual spoke of for me. I mean, it's, but I'm sure there's more to it. And indigenous peoples that I've met, whether they're from the Amazon or the, the plains of Dakota, they they have a sense that this thing, this thing they're eating, and are killing. They're bringing it in to be part of themselves. Yeah. Very, very select few people living in North America, Western Europe, really want to pursue. That's mm. how we're going it, to... It's a brutal. You know, mm. that, that's mm. the, the truth of it is it's brutal like war is brutal. You know, if you're going to kill an animal and bring it down that way, it's very rarely clean and simple. Mm. The other thing I think that struck me is that it does say more about how we do view our place in the non-human world and especially alongside these animals as well um, because it does demonstrate a lot more a lot more of an inherent view that we are part of we are just another species it does demonstrate the view that there is a great respect for the people the people a great respect for the other species you you share the landscape with the other peoples um, the, the, the yeah yeah exactly peoples, these other nations the that, peoples, that, yeah. that are there um, it does. It demonstrates all of that really starkly, doesn't it? So, if I was going to try and bring us back to how do these rituals? What do these rituals teach us about our, hmm. the human relationship with the non-human world? Well, it teaches me that there are still people who are deeply connected to that, and these rituals help them maintain that connection. It, it, it reminded me that it's something I've been thinking about as we've been talking about ritual and ceremony, and how much it's to do with what's behind what is seen physical landscape we can see around us is you know a giant turtle as you know many native american cultures believe and you think oh i get it yes it's deep symbolism or whatever but actually it's almost like they literally people literally believe this in a dimension beyond what we're seeing Mm, you know what i mean so it's like yes we we know that this rock and soil is not actually a turtle but it is a turtle yes so you imagine that spiritually yeah. We're travelling on this turtle and the Mother Earth is this thing or we are deeply connected to the bowhead whale and so in some underlying spiritual dimension this is what we are travelling on. 
on the back of this well, even though we perfectly well know that we're on tundra. And so those poets and lyricists or writers like yourself urging and finding connections and ways that we still connect with the land, and either through historical practices or through landmarks in the landscape. Let's try and reintroduce it. (laughs) Braintree in Essex is the wattle of a giant cockerel. (laughs) They've alighted on something that I think is going to catch on in Essex. So I want to bring us a bit closer to home now and, and sticking with survival and these rituals, I want to talk about not, not hunting this time but growing and harvesting, so I'm going to bring us back to the oh. British Isles now Okay. because, um, well, let me play you something and um, see what you think of this. What struck you about that recording? Um, it's not yet on my Spotify playlist, Colin, <laughs> but uh, that's something I'll rectify as soon as this broadcast is finished. So, uh, alongside Fiddy Scent, it's going to have a place there. But uh, yeah. It, so, so, what did you hear in it? Uh, what I heard was um, I heard a very um, English response to the land, and it has um, had a community feeling to it. Yeah. Uh, so that that's probably the overriding thing was it, it didn't feel the rootedness so much more like um but you could hear the people there was animation they were talking yeah, there was lots it, of them it, exactly that it yeah. felt it felt joyful and binding yeah but, so what the music we heard there was produced by a group of morris men called the silurian morris they're from the border Morris tradition. We're not going to get into Morris dancing too much because uh, I do, could get really nerdy about as you, it. As you do most days, Colin, when you talk with it, me. Exactly. Um, it's a tradition going back a long way and it has its roots are not well known. Um, it, they're quite misty and not, not particularly well understood. Um, but that's the Silurian Morris performing at an Oak Apple Day celebration mm. in the village of Founhope in Herefordshire. Um, and I, I write about that particular day and some of the imagery and things associated with it in in a chapter of my book. Oak Apple Day is supposedly a celebration of the restoration of King Charles II in 1660, but actually it's thought that its roots are much more pagan than that and much more ancient because what happens in Oak Apple Day celebrations is that a freshly cut oak bough is paraded through the streets um, with all of the villagers following it and in Founhope it's associated with a charitable organisation and they use it for raising money but they've been doing it for many hundreds of years um, but it is at its heart something because of the oak bough and the imagery of spring and it always happens in sort of um, I think the 1st of June is the traditional day for it so it happens at a time of great growth it is there is something very pagan at its heart and some great celebration of spring and growing 
Um, and of course go on a little bit further in the year and in the UK we also have lots of celebrations of harvest and gathering together and there a remarkable number of these celebrations have survived in in Britain lots of them are perhaps now done more for sort of quaint purposes than they are real belief that they they give the community something but nonetheless you go to a place like Found Hope for Oak Apple Day and you can really see it means something to them Lots of these things exist. I wrote down a few. The blessing of the plough is, an, is another one that, that I've witnessed. The Goatland plough starts crying the neck, which is about crying the, crying the neck, which is where once you've harvested the last sheaf of corn, you, the, the, the landowner normally holds it aloft and, uh, and there's a sort of call and response where they say, I have he, I have he. And uh, the, the, the workers say, who have he? And, the landowner says, by the neck, by the neck, and it's all associated with this legend of John Barleycorn and this sort of personification of the crop as a person who is sown and then grows and then is cut off at the neck, as it were, as they harvest the corn. And so there's lots of ancient and pagan associations with a lot of these things that go on. Soul caking is another another ritual that happens sort of in, in the north well, I, I, I'm really interested by that, but I wanted to throw at you first the sceptical point of view, which is, isn't it a load of old nonsense and, 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 and things devised because the, the imports of gathering the crop was paramount, how are you going to survive the winter with no, no, no crops harvested? What, what's, what's the real connection there? Is it just ridiculous superstition? Well, it might be, but does that ridiculous superstition as ridiculous as it might be, tell us anything. So if we if we think that some of the origins of this stuff are really murky, so it must have started with something. So there must have been some deep-seated, deeply held belief that nature either needed to be brought close or held at bay through ritual and ceremony. And in a book called On Silbury Hill by the great novelist Adam Thorpe, his, his only non-fiction book um, he describes the forests of Paleolithic Britain he uses the word ulterior so he talks about you know the hard um, wild world being ulterior in the minds of Britain's Paleolithic peoples and so they needed something to tame it they needed something to hold it at bay um, and so you know, perhaps some of these rituals that still survive today have something associated with some of those things. And if that's the case, then some of that significance must have been carried with it. And, and maybe we have to find it and dig it out. And you might say, well, if you have to dig out the significance, it doesn't have any significance. But I don't know. Part of me thinks there's something in this and there's something really important that connects us to our local and native landscapes about some of these ceremonies. And I think modern day psychology would agree with that. And there are a number of people that say that there's ritual and ceremony that we could introduce that would help people tame their inner demons and work with their own own wildness inside, just as we've done with the exterior world. And so the, I absolutely get it that when we no longer have those things, we've lost something, we've absented ourselves from something that a set of tools. Mm. And these were a set of tools to connect mm. people with the harvest and ensure it and ensure 
food and well-being and we've absented ourselves i'm going off a strange tangent here but it made me think as soon as you start to talk about the wild you realize that the the modern day view of the wild um is different to the old day view of the wild the wild was 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 it was a place that was untamed and we were desperately trying to separate ourselves as a species from the untamed and become domesticated in some way and now we're fully domesticated we can no longer recognize what wild means anymore and so we have a lot of the wild inside ourselves a.l lloyd the kind of great folklorist in his classic book folk song england he speculated on this and he asked the question what lay behind the sacred scenarios enacted at every critical season of the agricultural year the aim was simply to master nature more fully. Nature was a mystery and sacred because a mystery and to transform it required more than an axe and a digging stick. And so he definitely saw it as Brilliant. transforming nature into something else. So let's make it more tangible. Let's bring it down to our level by the use of these ceremonies and these rituals. Mm. And I love that. And it seems entirely absent from what we do today. And and potentially it's also much modern day malaise, mm. whether that is... Mm around health and food and many indigenous cultures we look at the way that we eat non-sacred food yeah and and food's not been gathered in any kind of ceremonial way or regarded in a in a sacred way as damaging to our health and then you have other aspects as i keep alluding to with mental health so uh, i think there's there's some power in that statement i want to play you another piece of music that was recorded in 1933 hmm. amongst the Navajo of North America and it's a corn grinding song. Ah, I love it and I love that. <laughs> I didn't expect I would. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me and this is the loosest of connections, it reminded me of walking songs that right. the, the women of the Western Isles when they're washing or working with, with the wool to make tweed and uh, that, that's a very labour intensive repetitive task and they have these there's something about the timbre of that which is which is similar so yes you you could argue that maybe humans need some rhythmic song in order for us to to get through mundane tasks but that can also in itself lead to a i was gonna say meditative state you know you we know that a repetitive task when we disengage our conscious mind the unconscious comes through and a connection with particularly food and the importance of it or clothing there's something liberated in that way, I suspect. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't mm. it? Food-related rituals, not just around eating. I'd not thought about that, around preparation. Yeah. Shall we do death, then? Go on, then. Let's, let's rush headlong towards death. Hello, death. <laughs> um, so, rituals of death. Really interesting. So, as I was researching our discussion today, I looked into a few of these things, and I immediately went to the things that I know about. So an awful lot of cultures use fire mm -hmm. um, in death rituals, or certainly rituals of disposal of, of bodies. 
Um, and but I went to the sky burial hmm. um, thing. Now I had imbued sky burials with something more than it appears they are. Why don't you tell the boys and girls what sky burial is in? <laughs> well, it, it, let's boil it down to um, birds eating away your flesh. <laughs> yeah, in in a ritualized way in in societies where where burial might not be physically possible because of the terrain or because of the way in which the the body is revered specialized members of society take and dismember your body to an elevated platform somewhere in the hill country of the mountains where where vultures will eat mm. yeah that, is that an yeah. adequate description yeah, yeah you're fed to the birds that that's pretty <laughs> much it I, when I was looking into this a little bit, so we should say where it's practiced, so in some Chinese provinces, so in Tibet, in Mongolia and Bhutan, and some parts of northern India. So the first thing to note is that part of sky burial, um, and strangely isn't a burial, is it? We've, we've just attached the word burial to, to make it work for us, um, is that it seems that in religious and spiritual terms, the body um, has, in sky burial, has no significance whatsoever. Um, there is no need to preserve that body in their view. It's simply an empty vessel. And the function of the sky burial is simply to dispose of those remains in the most generous way. Some observers have suggested that it's also part of that was uniting the deceased with the sky or with the heavens. But it seems that that's not true at all. The, the the true indication is that they believe that because life has left the body, it contains nothing more than flesh, and it is simply a way of disposing. They dispose of it with all due respect. It has some dignity to it, doesn't it? But there's no spiritual significance to feeding a body to the birds. I've imposed my, a, some sort of romantic no, notion onto that ritual, because I see, you know... I love birds, and I saw it as some, you know... I was thinking of putting it in my will. Ship me to Tibet, feed me to the birds, because I'm going to be, you know, reunited with the skies and, you know, my avian brethren. Um, there's nothing about that. It's just, we need to get rid of this body. Let's do it in a really generous way. With the manky old vultures. <laughs> with the manky old vultures. Which, of course, the intelligent people of the world know are extremely important parts of the ecosystem. But it's... I, I had attached that stuff to that... Right. And it simply isn't there. So it's really interesting because what I know of those societies, and they are they are all societies, and there are many of them elsewhere in the world that don't do sky burial, but have the same attitude, which is uh, the spirit, the soul of that person has departed to go join the collective consciousness or go to heaven or be reincarnated. or But nearly all those societies have an ancestor worship. Yeah. So they nearly all then revere them symbolically or at an altar or in some way the ancestors are are with you and, and the dignified way in which the mortuary operatives get rid of dispose of your body to the vultures is is just a house cleaning exercise. So yeah, I, I kinda I understood that to be the case mm. and, and it you know, it supports my notion of a life beyond this one and the fact that many cultures have that that notion too not all mm. but many many have that sense doesn't mean they dispose of the body in the same what seems to us cavalier way right 
but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it is interesting and, yeah. and and um and then we have this mixed mixed up sense i think in in let's take britain as an example where we can have very elaborate or not elaborate at all rituals associated with death that nearly all have a a dark and black and somber and sad and final feel to them of just committing that person to ashes or the ground yeah um, and it seems to me less fulfilling, rewarding, or true. Mm, mm. Yeah. But, but nevertheless, even within that, we have these rituals, which can be, you know, somebody performs a eulogy to, the, yes. to that dead yeah. person. That yeah. must be spoken and said and heard by an assembled group of people before they're committed in some ritual way to the ground. Uh, we've got to bring death back to also our... A constant question about so so what does this thing speak to us of what does it tell us about the human relationship with the non-human world um, or the human experience in the non-human world and um, I, I found it a little bit more difficult to bring rituals and ceremonies of death back back to that really hmm. um, because you're right in the west in the western world we still have the great laying to rest of people which also speaks of life as our view of life as being a great trial a great ordeal hmm. I struggled to equate our vestiges of that so laying to rest in the ground burning somebody scattering their ashes i struggle to equate that and yet still we talk about scattering people's ashes in places that they love to be mm. and so we're still connecting mm. these the our dead loved ones with the places they loved in life um and so i think it's probably still there we perhaps don't see it as consciously as other cultures I think it's great you alighted on that I wasn't really thinking about that but as you're speaking you think yes for even the most ardent atheists even the ardent scientific materialists they might have desires about where they want to be buried Mm. have their ashes scattered Mm. which is wholly irrational for somebody who believes when you're gone you're gone yeah but if you want an attachment to place that's symbolic and lives on yeah with you that would seem to make make sense I I've already decided Ian so we'll capture it on on record. On record, yeah. So once I've been cremated, a compost heap, a- All right. any compost heap. If you're passing some allotments, some local allotments, your own garden, I don't mind, as long as it goes on a compost heap and I'm somehow helping to grow your leeks. But but on a personal level, does that mean your sense of where your remains go is that because that connects you uh, there was a degree of flippancy in your comment maybe but is that because it connects you to the soil but but or is it because what happens to your body doesn't matter to you anymore i think it's the latter Mm -hmm. um and so because it doesn't matter to me anymore it may as well matter to someone else and if someone else gets some practical use out of my remains Mm. then then so be it short of being able to do the sky burial thing in hampshire Let's assume it can't be done. Um, yeah, just my carbon going back into the ground somehow <laughs> makes sense to me. So can I ask you this, because it, it prompted another question really, which is, is the ritual around our deaths different? Because rituals around death now for us tend to be mostly satisfying the desires of the people left behind. The mourners, yeah. Um, and the rituals around death for in tribal societies are often to honour and carry the spirit of the dead person it, on, on going into the next adventure. I want to just finish this part of the discussion 
with talking about some shared experiences that you and I have had um, with um, coming across um, burial constructions, um, so Paleolithic um, dolmens. I found that visiting those things and touching them and sitting inside them um, and especially where the, the locations of those things were. The ones that you and I have seen the, in recent years yeah, in Spain. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, that really taught me quite a lot about how my ancestors treated death because they don't tuck these things out of the way, they put them right on tops of ridges and hills. They're, an archaeologist friend of mine told me that they were often used as boundary markers between tribal boundaries, these, these burial mounds. Mm. And so, but they're obviously felt the need to move these huge stones it must have been a massive effort to create these chambers and then to there must have been some rights associated with laying a person to rest inside the chambers and then another huge amount of manual work to cover it up with earth and 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 make it good and and so it's a permanent um place for their dead ancestors to reside yeah and i think um i think these structures do speak of our desire to have a ritual of real power that goes with you know our ultimate exploration of the non-human world you know it's like in spirit to travel on or in spirit to guard the boundary of our land or whatever those things are and there's no doubt that 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 when you and i in recent years have traveled to to see some of these sites and cave paintings and other ancient sites in, in northern spain they are places of power mm. and that's a phrase we don't use very much in modern society but you know we can experience that but where it becomes really immediate is when you go to a site like that and, and, and sit amongst ancient standing stones and a place that had a powerful symbolic ritual significance for ancient peoples mm. it's a place of power and, and you'll know that we went to those places in a cavalier fashion but you know we went to explore them out of a sense of curiosity and I for one sat in them and 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 had a much more profound experience by being in those places mm. and, and it's like a doorway to some other realm so yeah I feel like they were they were powerful places that I I can touch upon any time and think about what I experienced when I went to them thank you for listening you can find out more about the podcast as well as links to information on all of the books and other things we've discussed today at our website at beneaththestream.com and we'll play out with more of that fantastic Tanzanian music.